On this podcast, we discuss medical diagnoses and procedures. All of the guests express their own opinions. You should always seek medical advice from a trained and credentialed professional when making decisions about your own health. Welcome to the Sleep Apnea Stories podcast. I'm Emma Cooksey, and I've been coping with sleep apnea since childhood. I didn't know anyone in my life with a sleep disorder, so I decided to start this podcast. I'm here to build community and provide a platform for people with sleep apnea to tell their stories. Together, we can shatter stereotypes and raise awareness. We'll be exploring all sorts of treatment options and lifestyle choices to help you live your best life with sleep apnea. This is Sleep Apnea Stories, and I'm so glad you're here. Hey there, it's Emma Cooksey here, and I'm your host. So before we get on to today's guest, I just wanted to remind everybody out there um, with sleep apnea that if you would like to be featured on an upcoming episode of the podcast, you can email me at sleepapneastories at gmail.com. And ever since I started the podcast, I've tried to have a balance between patients sharing their stories about their journey to diagnosis and treatment options for sleep apnea. And then also interviewing experts like dentists, doctors, surgeons, uh, all sorts of people, myofunctional therapists, you name it. Um, And so I I like that balance where half of the episodes um, are from patients directly. So if you're listening and you've thought about being on the podcast, but you're not sure, now is your opportunity. Take this as the sign and you can email me um, and let me know a bit about your story and why you'd like to be on the podcast. So that's that. And then on to today's guest. So today I'm joined by Dr. Shireen Lim. Um, Dr. Lim is a Perth-based dentist, so as in Australia, not Perth and Scotland, <laughs> just because I know we have Scottish listeners. She has a postgraduate diploma in dental sleep medicine from the University of Western Australia. She's been involved in the team management of snoring and obstructive sleep apnea for over a decade. Dr. Lim is dedicated to promoting airway health from infancy as an alternative approach to minimize the development of these problems and their consequences. And she's the author of the book, the excellent book, Breathe, Sleep, Thrive. Discover how airway health can unlock your child's greater health, learning and potential. So I really hope you all will get a copy of that book and read it, especially if you're a parent. There's so much information that, you know, is just not out there in the mainstream. Um, Pediatricians and pediatric dentists don't receive this training right now. So it's really only people that have sought it out and done the extra training who know about it, right? And, And the consequences of leaving these problems untreated can be really serious. So I hope you'll listen to this episode and get a copy of the book, Breathe, Sleep, Thrive. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Shireen Lim. So thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, no, fantastic. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I am. I I love your book. 
Um, awesome. I kind of I'd read it when when I first got it, and then today I was kind of going back through because I knew I was going to be talking to you, and yeah, it's re- really great. So I'm really glad you wrote your book. It's going to be so helpful to everybody listening to dig into some of the stuff in there. So do you want to just start by you're in Australia. So do you want to just start by explaining a little bit about your background, maybe a little bit about how you got into the whole realm of sleep in the beginning? <laughs> yeah, well, it was about, about 12 years ago. It was my husband snoring. It was really bothering me. And um, so frustrated one evening, I decided to get up and look about the dental sleep appliances. I knew that these were an option um, for obstructive sleep apnea and snoring. And you so were already I- a dentist at this point. That, oh, that's correct. Yes, yes. So as a dentist, <laughs> yeah, so I am a dentist and uh, I wanted to learn more about those dental appliances because it's not something we're taught in dental school. Right. And I actually enrolled in a graduate diploma in um, dental sleep medicine. So for two years learning more about sleep medicine and how to become involved with it and work with sleep physicians. And I started to realize that snoring is not just a sound, but it is linked to increased health risk and uh, how detrimental it can be for people. And I became more involved in offering these sleep appliances. So they really are a compensation to actually uh, band-aid the, like to to deal with a jaw deficiency, basically. And so I was starting to wonder how come we can't deal with the underlying deficiency when children are young? We're taught that in dental school, uh, you can do early interceptive orthodontics for children when they're seven to eight years old. How come we're just watching and waiting a lot of the time and we're taking out teeth when children have stopped growing around the age of 12, doing braces? Uh, why can't we deal with this underlying problem early? Mm-hmm. And so that's really why I wrote the book to kind of help people understand what, what are the benefits of early intervention for breathing and for sleep. And mm. the more I looked into it, the more I started to realize that we can even do a lot of work much, much earlier on in childhood because yeah. the way the jaws are formed is influenced by how the muscles uh, are, are working from from infancy. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to get all into that. And yeah. I guess I'm quite interested in the differences between Australia and the United States like I grew up in Scotland but I've lived in the States for like 15 years since my kids were born um and I know that with some of the information in your book like I've read similar things elsewhere and there's a lot of parents in the position that I find myself in in northeast Florida where I'm not in like New York or California or somewhere so I find it very difficult to find dentists who were really thinking about earlier interventions so I think for a lot of people they're taking their kids to um you know little I mean I was going to say the pediatric dentist but their pediatrician as well and Mm -hmm. they're kind of saying there's some things going on with sleep and what can we do and a lot of them are told like we just need to kind of wait and see what happens. And can you maybe speak a little bit to how urgent it is for for parents to, you know, get involved a bit earlier and really advocate for their kids? Yeah, for sure. Um, sleep is really critical in the earliest years of life. Uh, we know that the brain development, 90% of the adult sized brain is attained by the age of three years. And this is when we need sleep the most. 
And so we know that um, as important as it is to have the right number of hours of sleep, we need to be making sure the quality of sleep is good. And typically parents are pretty happy if their child is sleeping through the night. They're not necessarily checking on their child's breathing, but there are things to look out for, uh, whether it be mouth breathing, snoring, restlessness, tossing and turning, neck hyperextension, uh, and, and many more that could indicate a child is not breathing really well. And when that doesn't occur, when that doesn't occur, a child is going to be more at risk of problems like uh, difficulties with emotional regulation, poor, poor attention and concentration, symptoms of ADHD. Um, when children are not getting restful sleep, they're not tending to be like adults where we might get more sluggish. They may be more hyperactive or need to move, inability to sit still. Yeah. And have tantrums and things like that. So I think it's really important that we address these issues uh, when children's brain function really requires that sleep. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit to like really early, like just infants when they're first born, like kind of some of the things that even then are maybe being missed just because we don't have this focus about kids' airways I guess they're checking for a bunch of other things and they sometimes will miss things like tongue ties. And do you want to explain a little bit about how jaws are developing, you know, like from the moment kids are born and and kind of what's happening with that? Yeah. So the first year of life is the most uh, rapid period of jaw development. Uh, that's when the jaws are growing the most. And one of the biggest environmental influences of jaw development is how are the muscles working. And so we, we want to promote nasal breathing from the earliest years of life. And we want to look out for ensuring that babies can sleep with their mouth closed, their lips sealed. So sometimes it's as simple as just helping them to close their lips. But the other thing that's really important is the feeding. Uh, we want to make sure uh, we're a lot of parents, they recognize that breastfeeding has many benefits, immunological and health benefits, but not really well promoted is the the, the mechanical benefits of breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Because for breastfeeding, we need to have good tongue suction where the tongue is elevating to the roof of the mouth and suctioning against the hard palate. And then as it drops, it creates a vacuum. And that's how milk is extracted uh, really efficiently. Mm-hmm. And so we We want to let parents understand that the way we feed our children um, in that first year of life is also going to influence how the jaws grow. And we want to stimulate the muscles as much as possible through breastfeeding. And sometimes, um, yeah, like you mentioned, tongue ties, they can be a a barrier to getting good effective breastfeeding Mm -hmm. uh, because they don't allow the tongue to suction really well. And a lot of the time people have these problems and it's very overlooked uh, because we're not really taught how to identify tongue ties or um, recognize those symptoms. And I think think people just having been through, you know, breastfeeding two kids, like I think that there's not really enough support for breastfeeding mothers and and a lot of people will struggle on for a long time when you know they're they're having things wrong with the latch and and mm-hmm. clicking noises and and just stuff that's not going well and i guess like you know some support to kind of know what um effective breastfeeding looks like would be really mm-hmm. helpful for a lot of women yeah, for sure. Uh, we there even to see a lactation consultant. Many yeah. parents aren't familiar with what a lactation consultant does, 
But even when uh, we see a lactation consultant, there's a difference in the knowledge of tongue ties as well. So that's really important to recognize. So it's not unusual to see people that have seen multiple different professionals that have been told there is no tongue tie um, and they're put on all different medications and told different things, shields and and told babies will grow out of the situation. Yeah. Um, so I think it is important for mothers to follow their gut when something is wrong and, and seek out different opinions. One of the really interesting things that you wrote in your book, and also mm-hmm. I remember um, I kind of worked with a myofunctional therapist and I remember her saying this too, is that uh, there's a lot of mothers who are told like by you know healthcare professionals but they'll just kind of like look at the baby and say oh that tongue tie is not a problem or but it's really to do with the function right of what what the tongue can do and what's restricted from doing because of the tongue tie yeah I think it's really important to pay attention to the symptoms and recognize that it is really important to have good tongue elevation it's the tongue elevation that is really critical for the good milk transfer, uh, for good swallowing, uh, even later on for good articulation and good breathing and good tone that we need for good palate development and, mm-hmm. and sleep. And a- another common thing that occurs with these tongue ties is the, the misdiagnosis of reflux and colic because babies cannot lift their tongue and swallow correctly and they're taking in lots of air. And so I see that a lot in practice where babies are so unsettled, they're, they're given these medications which are not proven at all and um, no one has really inquired about the latch or how much air are they taking in yeah. so I think that's a really important thing to look for as well really important This episode of Sleep Apnea Stories is sponsored by BetterHelp. How well we look after our mind really affects how we experience life. Therapy has been so helpful to me since I was diagnosed with sleep apnea. It helped me to work through the feelings I had about going undiagnosed for so long. It also helped me to adjust to living with a chronic condition. One of the best things about starting my podcast has been realizing I'm not alone in coping with mental health issues along with sleep apnea. Speaking to a professional therapist has helped me enormously to manage my anxiety and depression. BetterHelp is online therapy and it's much more affordable than in-person sessions. You can get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Emma. That's betterhelp.com slash Emma. So as far as... um encouraging better jaw development in kids so they can grow up super healthy and not develop sleep apnea we hope (laughs) and what things as you mentioned like keeping the mouth closed and nasal breathing and Mm -hmm. what are the other things so chewing on hard things yeah for sure chewing uh 
we we know that that is really important to stimulate the the um the jaws uh and so the the muscles because um so we want to also avoid dummies uh because what they do so pretty much for the tongue for the fires for, for people in America yes, but for I sure, know what you sure. mean cuz we say yeah. dummies in so, the UK. <laughs> so I think for the upper jaw uh the palate which is really the template um good palate development is the template for good lower development we really want to focus on good tongue function and so that includes nasal breathing because when we close our mouth and we have that tongue resting in the roof of the mouth, um, that tongue is going to broaden or sculpt um, that palate. And mm-hmm. nasal breathing is important because that's where we spend all our time, you know, the majority of the day. So that light persistent force of that tongue up against the roof of the mouth is going to mold the palate. But then we also need to think about breastfeeding, as I mentioned, and also um, pacifier use, which is lowers the tongue so it lowers the tongue and then it so pacifier allows- use of any kind is there a particular one that's better or no just just you think none anything that lowers the tongue is going to interfere with that tongue position okay. and it introduces increased sucking pressures or inward pressures that distort the palate Got and it. because that jaw is so malleable in the first year of life um it it, it has an influence and we, it, those impacts are related to intensity, duration, and frequency. So obviously the least we do it, um, the less impactful it will be. Yeah. But a lot of people might say, oh, I just use it for sleep. However, sleep is the time where babies spend the most time. And uh, yep. yeah, so it's just about educating people. And there are some babies that will rely upon it, but sometimes when babies rely upon it, there may be an underlying issue. And I do think a lot of babies that do require it uh, there is an underlying issue that yeah I think I think with the thumb sucking as well like the, there's a dentist I recently interviewed Jill Umbrello and yes. she was talking about because I was a I mean I just had every problem so we're trying to avoid people listening have having kids turn out like me mm-hmm. but um I was a really serious thumb sucker for mm-hmm. years and years and years and and Jill was saying well that's your way of like um, you know, trying to kind of like bring the soft tissue out of your airway to breathe better. That was kind of interesting to me. I never really thought of it that way. But so thumb sucking and finger sucking aren't great either. Yeah, I think I think sucking habits are a compensation. And usually I'm starting to think that it's a reflection of poor tongue function. And there is some research from Italy which suggests that um having the tongue in the roof of the mouth it it really needs to sit and hit that n spot where we say n because that area is has the highest concentration of sensory receptors and when that tongue touches that spot and stimulates those receptors it sends signals to the brain and and it's involved with neurotransmission so it it um turns on pathways that uh release dopamine and serotonin and other feel-good hormones and so when the tongue isn't on that spot. These type of sucking habits can also be a compensation to stimulate those receptors. And so I think there is that neurotransmission aspect that we're missing. And it's a way to, for people to, to feel good when they put their tongue, thumb yeah. on that spot. And so it's really common to, uh, I think a lot of people in that my functional therapy space will agree that when we have children that are older and they really want to stop sucking their thumb and we've got them on board, it's very predictable. 
to get them to eliminate that thumb sucking habit within 24 hours if we're teaching them uh, where to put their tongue. Right. Yeah. Similar mm-hmm. feeling. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so there was a little bit where you were, let's see if I've got a little note there. I thought it was really helpful. You had some questions that parents, like if parents are listening to this and thinking, I really think my, there's something going on with my child's sleep and I need to find a dentist just like you, <laughs> but they don't live near mm-hmm. you. There was a list that you had of the kind of questions people can ask of a provider to kind of check if they, just because you were saying like the training, this is kind of a new developing area mm-hmm. and the training among dentists and pediatricians is vastly different. So you're going to go to some dentists who really won't know a lot of this about facial and airway development. So do you remember what those questions were? Because I can find it or not. <laughs> As you were asking, I was like, I hope you've got like, that list of You questions. probably asked, you probably wrote it like a million years ago and you're like, what? Um, what did I write? I think it's really important if you're seeing a dentist that they should understand that teeth grinding is actually a key red flag that a child might not be breathing well. Uh, because a lot of the time in dental school, we're taught it's something that they'll grow out of. Yeah. And um, yeah, so if they can understand that it is breathing are related often, then that's a pretty good clue of someone that might have done some further uh, learning. And then we want to ask them, um, you know, do they refer to orthodontists for early intervention and how early do they go? Uh, because if they're involved with early treatment before the age of seven to eight, they may understand that there's reasons, uh, functional reasons for breathing and sleep that we might want to do early treatment. Or do they refer to a myofunctional therapist to address? You're doing function? really well. I just found it in your thing. <laughs> or do they refer to ENT to an ENT specialist? Yeah. And, um, and to sort of work because I think this is one of the things that um, it's really important to get across is, you know, treating these kind of issues with children really involves a team, right? It's not about just going to one person usually. It's like sometimes. Mm-hmm you'll then get referred to myofunctional therapy or you'll you'll go to an ENT or whoever ever it happens to be. So people should definitely expect that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So about the age that you can start working on kids, like I, I think at one point in the book, you talked about, um, it might have been Kevin Boyder, it might have been Dr. Guillermo, I can't remember, but they were saying like, if you're waiting until um, the seven or eight, which is kind of like considered early orthodontics in the sort of mainstream, they're saying like, that's kind of too late because so much of jaw development happens earlier than that. So what kind of age are we, (laughs) you know, really trying to find somebody to help us with this? Like, especially as far as palate expansion goes. Yeah, well, uh, Dr. Gimeno, Christian Gimeno, he actually says that 60% of jaw development is done before the age of six. And so we really need to be addressing that poor development in that early, in those early six years of life. And so I've started to offer expansion in children around four, four years old. I've got three and a half year olds as well. Um, and 
that's about the the earliest age that I can get really good cooperation and get them on board to do it. Yeah. But there are practitioners that are doing it from the age of two years when children have all their baby teeth uh, is a good time where we have something to anchor or support those appliances. Mm-hmm. And do you want to explain, um, I always assume a lot of knowledge, but let's go back and explain yeah. what the palate has to do with nasal breathing and whether kids can can sleep well because of what's going on with their palate. Do you want to explain all that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So with the palate, um, the palate or the roof of the mouth is actually the floor of the nose. Uh, So when we have a narrow palate or any dental crowding, which indicates that the jaw is not growing well, um, what that means is we're going to have some degree of limitation of nasal airflow. And so we have research to support that when we do palate expansion, even a few millimeters increase in the width allows exponential increases in the nasal uh, cross section, which means air can flow more easily. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one aspect of it. The other thing is that it is also the housing for the tongue. And so we want good tongue to palate seal for really uh, good airway stability uh, to, to keep the airway open and so when we open up the palate it makes more room for the tongue as well and so when we look at adult obstructive sleep apnea what we know now is that uh, typically in the past a lot of focus was given to the mandibular advancement devices that bring the lower jaw forward mm-hmm. however a lot of the time when we have a uh, uh, retruded lower jaw there, it is accompanied by some degree of constriction of the upper jaw. Yeah. And so the upper jaw is really key to actually get everything working well. So, you know, I, I've had your journey and like it's so much more difficult and more invasive. And I just think it's really important for people to recognize this. We can actually modify and mold it a lot more early. Yeah. Do you actually treat adults anymore or you mainly are just treating kids? I do. I do see adults. Okay. Uh, you know, someone. A lot of the time, they may come in for a tongue tie consult. Yeah. Uh, and and it's they they may have sleep and breathing problems, or sometimes they come in for the dental devices. What do you think about um? Like I've just talked to so many people at this point who yeah. have done all sorts of surgeries, and mm-hmm. so I thought I thought the section in your book where you're talking about some case studies of adults was super Mm -hmm. interesting um Mm -hmm. but so it seems as though if people are wanting to try and address this underlying issue of like having a very narrow palate and you know like constricted Mm -hmm. airflow and their nasal airway and all that Mm -hmm. then it seems like you're suggesting people look at surgically assisted like dome you do you want to explain what dome is yeah i think surgery it, it, it sometimes can be a very good intervention for people. You know, right. a lot of the CPAP and the dental devices, they're really Band-Aid solutions. They only work at nighttime. Right. And the ultimate goal should be to restore nasal breathing. Right. And sometimes that means developing that palate. And traditionally, uh, we, we thought that you can't, the suture closes, you can't do that for adults. But now we know that you can use these mini implants or little screws that are placed in the bone next to the mid palate suture. And what that means is you can put a little uh, screw mechanism that applies the force directly against the palate, mm-hmm. uh, d- directly across the palate suture. So we can actually get that sutural stimulate separation mm-hmm. rather than move the teeth. 
Yeah. Um, and sometimes it may involve a bit of surgery, uh, like the dome technique, which is really just releasing some of the other sutures um, to allow the bones to move more easily. One of the people I interviewed really recently was doing surgically assisted rapid palate expansion. And I can't remember, I think she was using MSE was the actual yes. thing that she had connected up. So she was talking about, I always thought that any sort of those kind of appliances that connected into the bone, that mm -hmm. you would have to like have the palatal suture, you know, like surgically kind of cut. But she was saying that it got to a certain point and it just kind of like, almost like popped. <laughs> Yeah, like, yeah. So is that what you're talking about? Like it just kind of like gradually pulls apart until it separates. Yeah, I think. Well, well, as we age, that the the join or the the suture between the two halves of the palate is really fused. Yeah. Right. So um, mini implants is a way to in the previously they used to do a big cut in the middle of yeah. the palate uh, and then um, at the back. Uh, as well, just to allow things to move more easily. Yeah. But those mini implants, like the MSC, it actually allows that force to be placed very directly across the suture so it can be moved oh. easily and often can be done without surgery. A lot of the other things like um, the appliances and the acrylic appliances and different things, they may not get that same sutural expansion right. uh, and they may tend to move the teeth more, which can be, uh, which can kind of tip the teeth and yeah. sometimes it's really not appropriate for people. Some people it may that are less severe, they may benefit from that improved tongue space. But really, at the end of the day, if we want to improve nasal breathing, uh, using predictable techniques involving mini implants can be a good option. Are you doing more like referring to ENTs for like septoplasties and all those kind of things? Or are you trying this first? And then if they still need nasal, like, do you find that it kind of opens up people's noses so they maybe don't need as much surgery. I do believe that palate expansion plays a very central role. If we can make sure yeah. that people's palates grow it well, it, it it's really important for nasal breathing, uh, really important for the tongue space and, and for the whole support of that upper airway or throat. Yeah. Um, I think I people underestimate as well how much nasal congestion and restricted airflow in your nose really plays into sleep apnea like i think that people kind of think of it as a as a sort of localized thing but like if your nose doesn't work then can you explain a little bit about i think you explained in the book really well about how restrictions in nasal breathing it all, almost causes like a vacuum and and makes it more likely that things are going to collapse yeah for sure uh a lot of the time um, adult sleep apnea, the roots are in mouth breathing. Uh, and so if you try to breathe or snore with your mouth open versus snore with your mouth closed, you will notice that when you close your mouth, it is less likely that you're going to snore uh, because um, that, and as that tongue is up and sealed against the roof of the mouth, uh, air just flows really well and smoothly through the nose and down the back of the throat. But the moment that the, the tongue is mouth is open and the tongue is down and we've lost that tongue to palate seal, mm -hmm. uh, air has more than one way to flow and we have to breathe a little bit harder. And that's when we're going to get those uh, instability of the airway and increased risk of collapse. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
the more and more I see adults snoring and obstructive sleep apnea patients, the more I'm recognizing that, you know, we really need to address this nasal breathing problem and a lot of uh, mouth breathing problem. And a lot of the time when I see people that have had obstructive sleep apnea and they're here for dental devices, they've had various nasal surgeries that haven't worked out. And so we know um, from the team, Dr. Stanley Liu and the team at Stanford, they have established that people that have failed nasal surgeries, the common link is a narrow nasal uh, floor or a pal narrow palate. So we, we really uh, need to address that. Oh, I know what I wanted you to explain as well, is you have a really yeah. good diagram in the book where you're talking about the continuum from open mouth breathing and snoring right through to severe sleep apnea do you want to like maybe talk mm -hmm. a little bit because I think that a lot a lot of times people think you know like especially in our current system I'm sure it's similar in Australia where people are going for a sleep test and they're told even though they have a bunch of apnea events they're told oh your AHI is really low and we're not going to do anything to treat this and so which frustrates me like I'm not a really big fan of everything all being about the AHI because I know that there's just such a broad spectrum of like um not normal breathing mm -hmm. that, that can get worse and worse so do you want to talk a little bit to that yeah absolutely um well obstructive sleep apnea is the end stage problem uh, and it's a very arbitrary definition you need to have five um, for adults, five obstructions, 10 seconds or more uh, every single hour of sleep on average. Um, but pe what people don't recognize is that, you know, that those numbers, it, nine seconds, if you have nine second obstruction, it's not counted. Right. How low is the oxygen dropping during that time? And I want people to recognize that if we look on the other end, these problems begin when mouth breathing starts. Uh, and even mouth breathing in children, we know that it's linked to significant increased risk of uh, behavioral and learning problems and, and, and ADHD-like symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then even if we have, um, we, we, we may work harder to breathe, so we may not necessarily have 10-second obstructions. The sympathetic nervous system is more alert and it's in fight or flight mode. Uh, every time it looks like the airway is collapsing, there's an arousal from sleep and increased stress response or things like teeth grinding to kind of keep the airway open and it protects against sleep apnea or those longer obstructions. But that leads to very fragmented sleep. And so in children, it, it's linked to all those problems. But then um, the other group that's underdiagnosed or rec recognized is, is young women, premenopausal women. Uh, they, they are, are tending to get more of the upper airway resistance syndrome where yeah. they're constantly in fight or flight mode. But that's linked to a lot of other problems like anxiety, um, you know, irritable bowel, fibromyalgia, all these other yeah. functional um, somatic syndromes where um, there's an increased response to, to stimuli and um, it, it, it can be linked to this chronic stress of not getting good night's sleep. So I do think that it is important that we look beyond the AHI and obstructive sleep apnea and try to achieve healthy breathing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah because well. the more people that I interview who I mean I just if I had a dollar for every person that told me exactly the same story they went to their doctor and they said you have an AHI of four but they had really bad symptoms and they felt terrible mm -hmm. and 
you know, they just kind of were sent away without an answer and eventually figured out that they have uh, upper airway resistance syndrome. Yeah, like healthy sleep is not having any apneas, you know? So I think that like the whole thing about like, well, providing it's under five, well, like mm-hmm. if you're really easily aroused from sleep, like you could mm-hmm. you can be waking up multiple times an hour, you know, and just really never mm-hmm. getting restful sleep. Yeah, for sure. Okay, tell people where they can find you. Yeah. Probably my website, um, drshereenlim.com.au, or okay. I'm very probably the most active on Facebook. So okay, I'm often right posting different cases and, and information there. Awesome. And I'm going to put links to your book and mm-hmm. also all those places people can find you in the show notes so people can get in touch. Thank you so much yeah, for your time. Hi. No, thank, thank you so much. Thank you for what you do as well. I think really it's that adult problems that are often the most despairing because we know, gosh, we could have actually resolved or, or achieved a different pathway. Yeah. And so I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you today. Thanks so much for listening. I love hearing from you. If you'd like to be featured in an upcoming episode, please email me at sleepapneastories at gmail.com. That's also the place to get in touch if you just want to say hi or ask a question. Alternatively, you can always reach me on Instagram. My handle there is at sleepapneastories. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. This really helps a wider audience to find the episodes and I really appreciate it.